Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Last time I talked about North Korea, I said this episode would be about reform, economic and maybe even political reform, and I'm still going to talk about that. But as I was writing that script, more and more as I got into it, I was looking forward, and I don't want to do that quite yet. I'm still going to talk about reform in North Korea, or the potential for it, but I'm going to roll that into the final episode, which will be an extra-long episode about the present, Kim Jong-un, and different alternate futures for North Korea, including a maybe-reform-based one. Before we get to all that, though, there is one more thing I really wanted to talk about, and it's how you escape from North Korea, which really is one of the worst places on Earth. We have no idea how much of North Korea's population lives in prison camps, but we know it's an appreciable amount, and we know that people can be thrown into these camps for offenses as small as making an offhanded negative remark during state-sponsored news, or not keeping an image of Kim Jong-il or Kim Il-sung properly clean. The authorities don't need much of a reason to get rid of you. However, it's not because of political repression that most people have chosen to leave North Korea. It's the famine. North Korea never really got better. By 1999, yeah, the worst parts of the famine were basically over. That had a lot to do with aid from South Korea, Japan, and the United States, the three countries that, according to North Korea propaganda, are that country's worst enemy. But also, and this is really grim, a lot of people died, particularly the elderly. There were fewer mouths to feed. Lose 10% or more than that of your population, and hey, feeding folks can become a bit easier. But people still go hungry and are still malnourished in North Korea today. I'll talk about this a bit later on, but in South Korea, North Koreans are still pretty identifiable, mostly because they can be easily spotted due to the long-term effects of undernourishment and malnutrition, especially during childhood. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Going to talk about people escaping from North Korea, and I want to talk about a few notable people first, and then talk about how an ordinary person would do it. So, one early high-profile escape from North Korea concerned two filmmakers that I mentioned a few episodes ago. They were Choi Eun-hee and Shin Sang-ok. Kim Jong-il, very interested in movies. Apparently, he had thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of film reels, videotapes, and DVDs. Uh, and he even tried to write a book on movies called The Art of Cinema. He really wanted film to be a major part of the North Korean propaganda apparatus. But to make it effective, well, he wanted to recruit some outside talent. So, so he arranged to have one of South Korea's most prominent actresses kidnapped. Choi Eun-hee was traveling to Hong Kong, and North Korean agents picked her up and brought her to Kim Jong-il. Uh, apparently, she was afforded every luxury. He really tried to impress her. He put her up in a swanky apartment and told her that she'd want for nothing. But 
Uh, that is still kidnapping, and apparently she didn't appreciate it all that much. And meanwhile, her husband was searching for her. Her husband, who just happened to be Shin Sang-ok, one of the biggest directors in South Korea. He was known for making these big, sweeping, mid-century historical epics. Uh, he's usually called, like, the Cecil B. DeMille of South Korea. He was wondering where his wife had gone, and he was also in Hong Kong, where he, again, got kidnapped by North Korean agents, and, just like his wife, was told that he would be afforded every luxury and every resource and everything he could possibly want to make movies for Kim Jong-il. And they made a lot of movies. We're actually not sure how many movies uh, this director and actress ended up making for the Kim regime. But one of the most notable ones is called Pulgasari. And Pulgasari is a North Korean Godzilla knockoff. Uh, it is amazing. It's about impoverished farmers who team up with this, like, giant monster that looks like it has these big devil horns to battle this, like, evil despotic emperor. It's not good at all, but it's fascinating. Uh, it's on YouTube if you want to watch the whole thing. But despite making, like, Godzilla knockoff movies, both Choi and Shin wanted to leave. Choi and Shin eventually got into Kim Jong-il's good graces, and that afforded them a little bit of freedom of movement around the Eastern Bloc and even into Europe. So Kim Jong-il, he wanted to tour a lot of these movies and promote them, and they had openings in other communist countries. And when they were on the move, both Choi and Shin had North Korean handlers who coached them to say, yeah, everything's great. Everything's fine. We are in North Korea with Kim Jong-il under our own volition, making totally not Godzilla movies. But they were not happy. What they ended up doing was secretly recording Kim Jong-il in a conversation where it was very clear that they were not there freely. They wanted this evidence because when they defected, they wanted to be able to say, no, guys, listen, we were being made to say all that stuff. Here's proof. So they made some recordings that made their captivity and unwillingness pretty apparent. Eventually, they were able to go to a film festival in Vienna, and successfully defected in 1986. North Korea immediately issued a statement saying that they had been, in fact, kidnapped by Western authorities, but Choi and Shin had the evidence. They were able to prove that they were not there of their own volition. Eventually, they moved to the United States, and man, I want to see a movie of this. I would watch a movie about these two making movies and having the Godzilla knockoff in it. It sounds amazing. They're probably the most high-profile defectors from North Korea, even though they were, like, kidnapped. A few other high-profile defectors include government officials and academics who also had freedom of movement, who were also able to go to other Eastern Bloc countries, particularly China. We know of a professor and a high-ranking government official who, while in Beijing, walked into the South Korean embassy, said, hello, I'd like to defect, and eventually was able to do so. What that means, though, is that that channel is kind of closed for other people now. China's official policy is that escaped North Koreans go back to North Korea, and security around the South Korean embassy is pretty tight. So... 
if you, ordinary person, want to escape, making it to Beijing and walking into the South Korean embassy isn't good enough. Chinese cops are probably going to get to you before you're able to run up the steps, grab the door, and say, Sanctuary! That just can't happen anymore. I'm sorry. But one more high-level defector. It was a guy called Kenji Fujimoto. Or at least, that's his pseudonym. We don't know his real name. He was a Japanese chef who was Kim Jong-il's personal chef from the early 1980s until 2001. Fujimoto is one of our best sources for the inside of the Kim regime, and also for the Kim's just mind-bogglingly luxurious lifestyle. He wrote a book called I Was Kim Jong-il's Cook, and that highlighted his, you know, party boy lifestyle. The cognac, the movies, the disco music, uh, gyrating women wearing not very much, if any, clothing at Kim Jong-il's various um, functions. Let's call them functions with him and his inner circle. And when he wrote this book that was all very salacious and filled with alcohol and dancing naked women, a lot of people thought that it was maybe exaggerated or entirely fake. But Fujimoto, before anyone else, said, hey, the next leader of North Korea is going to be Kim Jong-un, one of Kim Jong-il's sons. A lot of people at the time didn't even know Kim Jong-un existed or that he was in the running to be a successor. Fujimoto turned out to be exactly right, so a lot of people take his pretty salacious, lurid account a bit more seriously now. Also, Dennis Rodman, who first visited North Korea in 2013, has described Kim Jong-un's lifestyle as similarly lavish. Rodman has said of hanging out with Kim Jong-un, quote, It's like going to Hawaii or Ibiza, but he's the only one that lives there. He likes people to be happy around him. If you drink a bottle of tequila, it's the best tequila. Everything you want, he has the best, unquote. And he also called his vessel, quote, a cross between a ferry and a Disney boat, and said that Kim Jong-un has seven-star everything. When I started this podcast, I didn't think that I would ever quote that 1990s icon, Dennis Rodman, but here we are. What a time to be alive. Anyway, Fujimoto got to know Kim Jong-il pretty well. Apparently, like, they went on vacation together, they went skiing together, and by his telling, he was more than just a chef. He was also, like, the guy that Kim Jong-il likes to talk to and, you know, tell all his worries to, but apparently no amount of getting to know the guy wanted to make Fujimoto actually stick around for good. So his way of escaping North Korea was, was, I have to say, pretty amazingly simple. He said to Kim Jong-il, hey, you like sushi. There's this particular type of sea urchin that uh, I want to do for one of your big dinners. You know, the one where you have lots of guys and like scantily clad ladies gyrating around and you impress all your underlings. One of those. I want to make you this uh, particular kind of luxurious sea urchin, but the best ones, they come from Hokkaido. So uh, I'm going to go over to Hokkaido and get some of those, okay? And Kim Jong-il said, oh yeah, sure, go do what you gotta do. Sea urchin run. See you when you get back. Fujimoto went to Japan and never came back. That was in 2001. Again, Kenji Fujimoto is a pseudonym. He now lives in hiding, and when he has spoken, he does so with his face shadowed and his voice distorted, 
because there is the very real possibility that he could be assassinated by North Korean agents. But again, really big and high profile. Most people who escape North Korea aren't filmmakers. They aren't academics or government officials that can just walk on up to an embassy. Nor are they Japanese chefs there for 20 years against their will and then able to just disappear when they're on a grocery run. You might think that going from North Korea to South Korea would be a fairly simple matter. After all, they are right next to each other on the map, and if the borders were open, you could probably drive from Seoul to Pyongyang in a single day. However, the DMZ is right there, and it is one of the most militarized and dangerous places on Earth. It's filled with soldiers, landmines, and who knows what else, and getting through it for a civilian is basically impossible. Now, if you're a soldier and you want to go through the DMZ, that is not impossible, but it's still dangerous. Uh, Penmunjiam, I've mentioned it before, that is the village where North and South Korean soldiers face each other every single day. And it is what you probably think of when you imagine the DMZ. There have been a few instances where North Korean soldiers have tried to just make a run for it into South Korea, but doing that is a great way to get shot at. Uh, this most recently happened in 2017. A North Korean soldier just gunned it. He ended up getting riddled with bullets, and he lived, but only after being shot multiple times. You also might be wondering, why not just go around? There's an ocean right there. Why not just swim or take a boat? Well, first you have to have a boat, which a lot of people don't have. And even if you go out into your fishing boat, then you have to deal with military patrols whose job is to find people like you. And there aren't a lot of places to hide on the open ocean. So that's out. No, if you're going to escape from North Korea, your best bet is to go thousands of miles over rivers, plains, cities, mountains, and deserts, via cars, trains, motorbikes, and airplanes, through multiple other countries. But before that, you have to get out of your own village. Now, even within North Korea, travel is especially restricted. You're not allowed to just go from one town to the other because you feel like it. You have to have a travel permit to leave where you officially live, and another permit to visit somewhere else. If you have any visiting family, well, they have to be accounted for. There's this thing called the Inminban system, where every apartment building, every clutch of houses, every kind of area has an Inminban, or kind of administrator or overseer, whose job is to make sure that everybody is following the rules and doing what they're supposed to. And the impression that I've gotten of this system is that North Korea has really kind of weaponized nosy neighbors, the kind of busybody-type people who post weird stuff on Nextdoor and are always watching what everyone else is doing, the state uses that. The state uses that kind of very personal nosiness to see if somebody didn't come home last night, or there seemed to be an extra person in a house, or there was additional noise or lack of noise in one of the adjoining apartments. By the way, this apparently makes having a relationship in North Korea extremely difficult, if not impossible. So, intra-country travel is already hard. That is why most of the people who escape North Korea come from the northern part of the country. 
they're the ones who are already pretty close to China and Russia. Now, almost no North Koreans escape through Russia. That does happen, but extremely rarely. The vast majority of the hundreds of thousands of escapees from the past 50 years have gone over to Yalu and Tenmun rivers into China. Now, let's say you do that. Good news, there are established ways of getting out of the country. There is kind of an informal underground railroad type system, mostly made up of former North Koreans who have escaped and want to help other North Koreans. A lot of them are also Christian missionaries who have a religiously motivated reason to get people out of there. So if you are an escapee and you know the right people and you ask the right questions and you don't get caught, you can get some advice like where on the Yalu River you should cross, what the narrow parts are, where you can maybe wade, or which parts are reliably crossable when the river freezes, stuff like that. You could also find out how to bribe guards. Uh, apparently, food will get you everywhere. Sure, cereal grains work, but if you have some dried protein, like some dried squid or fish, that tends to work really, really well when you're trying to make the authorities look the other way and you get out of North Korea. Then you get to China, but you're not safe yet. That is just the beginning, because the Chinese government's official policy is one of refoulement. And that is a fancy diplomatic word, which basically means taking refugees and putting them back where they came from. China does not recognize the refugee status of North Korean defectors. So if the Chinese authorities capture you, well, you're back to North Korea. Fortunately, though, the broker system, the kind of underground railroad system, has this whole plan to take people through China and down into Southeast Asia. If you can go through China and then through Vietnam, Laos, or Myanmar slash Burma, and get to Thailand, you're good. Those other countries, Vietnam, Laos, and Myanmar slash Burma, they might also deport you to North Korea if they find you. But if you can keep your head down and avoid the authorities and, like, live in the back of a truck or inside a car or just not attract too much attention on the way from northern China down to Thailand, you're almost there. When you get to Thailand, it's not like the Thai government is just going to immediately ship you to South Korea. They tend to take North Korean defectors and hold them in, well, ungenerously, it could be called a detention center, where they detain them to question them and then determine they are not, in fact, overseas North Korean agents. If you get through that, then you can get on a plane to South Korea. There's also another way you could go. You can go from northern China and into Mongolia, and the official policy of the Mongolian government is that if they find you, they will ship you to South Korea. The problem with that is that the overland route from northern China into Mongolia is not hospitable. There are mountains and deserts in the way, and even after you cross the Mongolian border, you're in Mongolia, maybe on foot, and... Sure, eventually somebody will find you, but you might end up dead in the wilderness before running into other human beings. Oh, also, on every step of this journey, uh, lots of potential North Korean refugees have to make sure they're not getting trafficked. There's always the possibility that they could meet somebody in China who says they want to help them resettle, 
but it is in fact a scheme for, say, selling North Korean women to single Chinese men, or getting, like, cheap laborers that they can sell off to, say, Russian lumber companies. That kind of thing. So there's that wrinkle as well. But let's say you get to Thailand and you get that plane ride to South Korea. Or you're in Mongolia and the government ships you over to Seoul. Well, good news. South Korea doesn't legally recognize North Korea's right to exist. A policy that extends from that is that all North Korean citizens are legally South Korean citizens. Automatically. There's no, like, green card process. On paper, you're a South Korean citizen already. However, South Korea is also wary that North Korea has international agents who might want to try to, you know, assassinate the president, hypothetically. So, every North Korean refugee to South Korea is also held and questioned and vetted. When they get out, they're usually given a stipend to help them get started, they're set up in a halfway house, and there are government-sponsored programs to help them find a new way in South Korea. However, the impression I've gotten is that it is always extraordinarily difficult. It is not like one can go from one of the most isolated, impoverished, and in a lot of ways alien countries on Earth, and then go to South Korea. Like, have you been to South Korea? I have. It's great. Like, Seoul is this amazing modern city filled with, like, neon and really good public transportation and lots of activity. And imagine coming from North Korea and seeing all of that suddenly being awash in so many of these things you never had to deal with. Billboards, advertisements, traffic jams, all of the noise and bustle of modern life that wasn't part of your life until very, very recently. There's also the problem of discrimination. Uh, in South Korea, it's not like a lot of people want to, you know, be friends or go on dates or even hire uh, North Korean refugees. It does happen, but there is kind of a social stigma. There's suspicion, and there's a whole thing where a lot of them are considered, you know, rubes. North Koreans also tend to be easy to identify. I already mentioned that they tend to be smaller that's the ongoing effects of malnutrition and starvation. And they tend to have extraordinarily distinctive accents. Uh, over the 50-plus years since North and South Korea have been separated, the languages that they speak have diverged, and North Koreans tend to be noticeable as soon as they open their mouths. There's also just the stress of, in some ways, having your previous life just kind of erased, and you have to press the reset button. Um, again, I want to mention Barbara Demick's amazing book, Nothing to Envy, where she interviewed numerous North Korean defectors. And I want to quote one passage about a man who made his way from Pyongyang to Seoul. Quote, In North Korea, Jun Sang had a good class background, money, fancy Japanese sweaters, and a Pyongyang education. Now he was fresh off the boat, with no money and no connections. His North Korean education was useless in South Korea. Everything he'd learned about science and technology was obsolete. He had no immediate prospects of a good career and was stuck doing odd jobs such as delivering food on a motorbike. On his rounds one day, he was knocked over by a taxicab. He picked himself up off the pavement and, finding no damage to himself or the bike, rode off. 
when he got back to the restaurant and recounted what had happened, his boss roared with laughter. If Jun Sang hadn't been such a clueless greenhorn, he would have collected some settlement money from the driver. Unquote. That's way better than starving to death. That's way better than seeing your loved ones die. That is way better than living in a regime where you can be locked away in a prison camp because you said the wrong thing during a news broadcast. But it's all very bittersweet. And this is going to be a problem if the North Korean situation ever resolves itself. The red flags come down. Statues of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il are toppled. Kim Jong-un, well, who knows what happens to him. Propaganda posters are replaced with advertisements for South Korean and Japanese brands, and there is maybe liberation in that, but there is still trauma. And all endings for North Korea are shades of bad. Next time, we're going to talk about those various endings. What happens with North Korea? Where's it go? Where do we go from here? That episode's going to be a bit longer. Talk to you next time. Bye. Mm-hmm.